There, there's an area of psychology that refers to the locus of control that we perceive. There's a certain kind of person that we all know who I call the whiner. And this <laughs> that person, used to be me. <laughs> this person is constantly blaming others, constantly saying, woe is me, is co you know, constantly wanting to get revenge. And this person sees the world as happening to the person. There's another kind of person, and that's called an external locus of control. There's another kind of person who thinks, I can do things, I can handle it. I just fell down on this sidewalk, I better watch where I'm walking, and takes control of situations and perceives the world as being something that is controlled from within them. And that's called an internal locus of control. And it turns out that people are much better achievers achievers of anything, including survival, if they perceive themselves as having some real agency in the world and they have an internal locus of control. So that, I think, makes an important distinction of whether you're going to be a victim or a rescuer. Welcome, my friends, to another Fireside Chat in the Forge. This week's guest is Lawrence Gonzalez, the author of several award-winning books, one of which we're going to talk about today, which I w is called uh, Deep Survival, who lives, who dies, and why. Welcome to the Forging Metal Podcast with your blacksmiths, Tara O'Brien and Ron Duran Jr. Come inside and grab your hammer. The fire is hot and ready. It's time to harden up. Let's get to work. The Forge is now open. Let me start with saying that when you start a podcast, at least for me, and maybe this is true for Tara as well, but you get this wish list of people that you go, gosh, this is who I want as a guest on my show. And I would say Lawrence fit that bill for me personally. I found his book about, I think it was about a decade ago, and it has a little bit of a cult following in the aerobatic aviation community and for good reason. Lawrence has a background of competitive aerobatics, much like I do. So I was immediately drawn to Lawrence because of that. I would also say that that Lawrence is a, a multiple award winner for a reason. I love the way that the the words kind of just jump off the page. It's really a lot of fun to read a nonfiction book that that is so colorful. So I, I appreciate that about about Lawrence's writing, and I also really enjoyed that he spends a, a fair amount of time talking about psychology and neuroscience. And for a professor that teaches a course in neuro leadership you know that I geek out on that. And so understanding how the brain works is, is pretty fascinating, especially in survival situations. So I think without further ado, why don't we just get rid, right, you know, right into letting Lawrence talk instead of myself. And I know Lawrence, you've probably told this story dozens of times and maybe even a little tired of telling it, but for, for people that don't know you, I think we would be remiss without starting with the story of your father, which is just so amazing. And then, you know, kind of how did that lead you to become uh, what I would call a subject matter expert on survival? Well, when I was a little kid, and, and this is how deep survival begins, I would hear these war stories about my dad. And he was not the kind of person who spent a lot of time talking about the war. These were stories that had to be sort of dragged out of him. And I, I think pretty reluctantly at that. 
but essentially I, I thought these stories were like fairy tales and gradually began to realize they were actually true. He was a B-17 pilot over Germany, flying out of England near the end of World War II, doing those big, big bombing runs against Germany that, that helped win the war. And he was shot down. He was shot down more than once, actually. But the final time that he was shot down, he had his left wing shot off. And he was uh, one of these, he was actually an old salty pilot of 23 years. He was considered the old man at that point. And this was his 25th mission, which would have been his last because you had to do 25 missions. And he had his left wing shot off. Being the salty old pilot that he was, he had kept his parachute beneath the seat, which was against regulations. You were supposed to wear it the whole time, but it was like very uncomfortable. And so it was beneath his seat. He couldn't get to it. As soon as the plane lost its left wing, it rolled upside down and began a violent maneuver spinning around and around. Who knows how many G's he was pulling. But he again, he couldn't get to his parachute without unbuckling. And as soon as he did, he was thrown against the instrument panel and couldn't move. So he fell 27,000 feet in a piece of the plane because the G-forces were so great that it pulled the plane apart. So he was in a little piece of the cockpit and fell 27,000 feet and lived through it. So as a little kid, I, I couldn't really conceive of this like, how can you fall 27,000? I don't think I even knew what 27,000 feet was, but I'd certainly jumped off the garage roof enough to know <laughs> that this was a bad idea. And anyway, he lived. And, and of course, being a little kid, I was fascinated by the idea that if he had died, I wouldn't be here. And being the most important person in the world, that was kind of shocking to me that that, that could be possible, that I could not be here. So it, it really started me at a very early age thinking about survival, thinking about life and death, thinking about fate and chance and things like that. And I, I grew up with that. And how did that, you said you started kind of focusing your, your thoughts around survival as a, as a youngster, but how did that kind of culminate as you, you know, became a man and, and started writing because you've written quite a few books that center around this topic. How did that kind of evolve to where it is today for you? Well, so being the son of the hero is kind of a burden. You know, you come up, everybody worships the sky. He came back from, so when, when he went down, he was reported presumed dead because there were no parachutes came out of this plane. And all the other guys in the other planes were watching him get shot, you know, get his wing shot off and fall to the ground. And they just assumed no parachutes, no survivors. So my mother, who was his fiance at the time, and my father's parents who were waiting for him, got this telegram saying basically he's dead. And he wasn't, he was in a Nazi prison camp. So he comes home, he's like this hero and he's like the star of the show. And he also was quite a show off himself and a brilliant guy. He became a scientist, he became a college professor. And I grew up in in the shadow of that. So I think part of my motivation growing up was to sort of live up to the legend So I did a lot of things like flying aerobatics, and I did a lot of adventure journalism out in the wilderness, and I did a lot of perhaps more risky things than I should have. I think in an interest of pursuing this 
this legend. And in fact, one of my books, which is a collection of stories that grew out of these adventures, is called The Hero's Apprentice. And it was it was me, you know, going out there trying to prove something. And, and it was the kind of journalism I did that began me thinking in a new way about survival. I was working for National Geographic and I would go to dangerous places and I'd come back and I'd write these stories that glamorize these places like Glacier National Park, for example, a wonderful, beautiful place that I love. And I was out there doing a story for National Geographic and I got lost and I would have gotten killed except for just an accident of, I, I got lost at the beginning of an ice storm and I just happened by chance to stumble onto a lake where a boat had just pulled up and they, they carried me away from there and saved my life. And that story is in a collection of my essays that's called House of Pain. And there's a new collection of my essays called The Chemistry of Fire. And all of these stories began to accumulate in my mind. And after an experience like Glacier, I thought, you know, there really hasn't been a scientific book about survival. Why is it some people survive and some don't? And I was, since my father was a scientist, I was always reading science. And I thought, I'll bet there's some really cool stuff having to do with neuroscience that could help explain the outcomes of these things. And that really generated the, the research that led to deep survival and got me realizing that this wasn't just about the wilderness. It was about making decisions any place in your life, whether it's about business, investing, whether it's about a bad relationship that's falling apart, whether it's about something to do with, you know, losing your job, that's a kind of survival situation. And so it has proved true over the last 17, 18 years that this book has been out that all of those kinds of situations apply to deep survival. There's, I appreciate that so much. You know, the idea of you watch smart people, dare I say, do stupid things. And I know that you are somebody that, that reads accident reports uh, and a lot of, quite honestly, a lot of pilots do that where, where we read, you know, how did somebody die? And, and, and then it's so easy to dismiss that and say, well, I would never be that stupid. You know, I can't believe they did that. A lot of what comes out in your book is, is yeah, smart people do things that you just scratch your head and go, what in the, what in the world were they thinking? But I think it's, it's quite fascinating to see how our brain just kind of goes haywire in, in certain situations. And I don't know, I have to say, as I read your book, I felt like sometimes I came away with more questions than I did answers of how would I do in this situation? But one of the things, and there's so many fascinating things in this book, but one of the things that comes to mind with me that, that didn't seem right is that you say survivors in general experience humor and awe a lot. And I'm like, all right, we have, you know, a lot of these people have grisly injuries. They're facing their own death and they would, you know, crack a joke and, and laugh, or they would see a beautiful sunset and, and remark on how, how beautiful it was. And, and they were grateful for, for that. And I'm like, how does that happen? That seems so at odds for a survival situation. It kind of reminds me of what, what I think you might be familiar with is the laconic sense of humor of like the Spartan warriors. You know, they, they would be marching into battle and they would, they would, if you don't know what laconic sense of humor is, I, I would kind of describe it as a dry sense of humor. So they would crack a joke, you know, as they're marching into battle or, or when they're in, you know, in, in a battle. And 
what is it about this, this humor and awe that, I mean, what does it do to our brain and why is that something that we see with survivors? So the, there's a part of the brain called the amygdala, which is kind of like the alarm central system. If something is threatening, the amygdala sets off a chain of reactions in the brain that pre- prepares you for fight or flight type of responses. Uh, and we're all familiar with what it feels like to have the amygdala activated. My wife and I joke about it all the time because we're alone at home, right? And we have a, like a four bedroom house, it's roomy, and we both know that we're here. And yet you come around a corner and there's your wife right in front of you and you didn't expect her to be there. And all of a sudden you startle and you go, oh my God, you scared me. And you put your hands on your chest and you breathe hard and you can feel the rush of, of that startle response. And yet it defies all logic. So any amount of knowledge that you have of the ordinary kind that we think of, like, yes, I know I'm sitting in a chair right now, that knowledge goes out the window and this automatic system takes over and it's started by the amygdala. And so she, she, we talked about how, you know, you respond to uh, seeing a bear this way. If you're hiking in the woods, you see a bear, it's like, oh my God. And so if she hears me coming around the corner, she'll say bear, bear (laughs) (laughs) to keep, keep us from startling each other. Nice. <laughs> a good system. This, I like that. But this, this amygdala can be shut down. If you notice when you get startled like that, the first thing you do after that is you laugh. So the laughter dampens the effects of the amygdala. And so it's a protective mechanism. And all mammals use it. We don't think of most mammals as laughing, but they actually do. And so once you are in a really dangerous situation, by joking and laughing, you can blunt the overall effect of what would amount to panic and allow yourself to continue functioning. So that's the neuroscience basis of this. And the same is true, you know, if you see an opportunity for investment, let's say, let's say you see that Apple is going to split five ways per share and you think, boy, that's going to really boost the company. I think I'm going to buy Apple and invest in it to protect my family with some backup investment. You kind of get like this, I don't know, before jumping off the cliff kind of feeling. Like, what if I lose all this money? And that's a good time to be examining how you react to dangerous situations because it's another kind of threat. The same is true if you have a health problem. You know, you get diagnosed with cancer or something. You're on the edge of the cliff. You have to start making good decisions to to save yourself. And it's a good idea to have a sense of humor when you go into that. Lawrence, how do you think people can actually use the advice that you're, or the, the, the knowledge that you're sharing right now on how important laughter is in these really trying situations? How do you, do you have advice for people on, I mean, with everything going on in the nation and the world right now, I think a lot of people probably feel like they are living through some life and death situations or they are almost living through trauma. Yeah. How do you think that what you're talking about with humor and awe could be used daily for people to kind of help make uh, their situations a little bit better? Well, so in 
in my book, Deep Survival, in the end of the book is an appendix that contains 12 traits of survivors. And all of these things are, are in there and explained in there. But the first, the first of these is perceive and believe. And what that means is don't engage in denial. So if you've broken your leg and you're at 20,000 feet on a mountain in Peru, don't say, well, maybe it's just sprained. <laughs> if you broke your leg, you broke your leg and you better start thinking about what you're going to do next. And the same is true in situations like the pandemic, for example. The first thing that everybody did at the beginning of the pandemic was they denied that it was really happening. And that was part of the problem. So you've got to get rid of denial right away. Whatever is happening is happening. The second thing is to stay calm. And again, this, this is addressing the neuroscience behind all this, which is that the emotion and reason work like a seesaw. If emotion is really high, an emotion like fear, for example, you're not going to be able to think straight. If you can bring reason up at a higher level, then you're going to start to dampen down that emotion and be able to think through what you're going through. And then in the appendix of deep survival, where it goes through these 12 things, I can't remember the exact order, but along the way, one of them is see the beauty, you know, wherever you are. So Viktor Frankl, who is famous for his book, Man's Search for Meaning, talks about being in Auschwitz in a death camp and how he and some of the people there would go out in the evening to watch the sunset because it was so beautiful. So in the midst of this terrible horror, they were able to find some beauty. And again, the reason that this works is because it dampens the alarm signals of the parts of the brain that make us run away from bears. And so it's very useful to develop in your regular life, before you need it, these habits of, of being honest with yourself about what's going wrong, staying calm in the face of it, taking in the beauty that's around you, learning to have humor. Don't take yourself too seriously. You're not the center of the world, although we would like to be. And, and all of this strengthens your resilience in the face of these shocks and they are traumatic, things like the pandemic is going to prove to be a post-traumatic kind of situation for people. And that's why I wrote the sequel to Deep Survival, which is Surviving Survival. It's about what happens when the episode is over. And I think we're going to face that a lot with the pandemic because people are now being traumatized by it. And they're saying, when can we get back to normal? The truth of the matter is that an event as big as the pandemic, there is no normal. Normal is over. What there's going to be is a future, and it can be a future that's happy, productive, livable, and so forth and so on. But it's not going to be the same as the past. It just can't be. And the people who are experiencing it now, all of us, are going to be different people and have to remake our lives to reflect the new reality. I have to ask you, how, how do you feel about that personally, Lawrence, in the sense of you've been on this earth for quite a few decades and now all of a sudden you have to live this entirely new existence with this new normal? Like, how does that feel for you? What, what if you're willing to share, how do yeah. you, your wife even combat that? 
So my wife, Debbie, and I both have gotten used to working at home because she is a massage therapist and I'm a writer. So I go to my room and she goes to her room. And it's, I think, harder for her because she has clients and, and I work alone. So she doesn't have that social element that she's used to. Or as she puts it, uh, I want to talk to somebody else other than you. <laughs> she used to go to the gym a lot too. And that was another social circle for her. So, but I mean, she's an incredibly resilient person and, and we are both used to being home and we're very lucky because we like each other. So that works. And we are very lucky because we can get everything we need delivered. So we, we consider ourselves to be among the very, very lucky people going through this. And, and I know people who have had real, real grim hardships as a result of this that we don't have. And so I think, I think we're, you know, enjoying it as much as possible. It's like, there's not really a schedule most days. I'm doing my work. She has taken up other things instead of working with her clients. And so it, you know, we're, we're strategizing and making do and, and finding new, new avenues of, of entertainment and enrichment. So as the massage therapist, she, she is also a fine artist. She went to art school and is quite a good artist. And the two things went together because they both, both involve the muscles of the body. If you become an artist, you have to learn anatomy to draw people. And if you become a massage therapist, you have to learn anatomy to do the therapy and the two things go together. So she's been teaching me anatomy. She knows more anatomy than our doctor. And uh, so I've been learning human anatomy, which is a fascinating thing. So you think of things and if you're a good survivor, which I try to be <laughs> being the author of Deep Survival, uh, I, I find that when you're in a tight spot, you better find something to do. That's the therapy that brings up the thinking that dampens down the emotion. Just do something, find something and do it. And it's also the therapy that after it's all over is going to keep you away from PTSD. Ah, good point. Yeah. So, I was going to say, Lawrence, you touch on a topic that you didn't really say the words, but, but I think what you're talking about here is, is, something that I'm fascinated by and, and mental ma maps or, or sometimes called mental models. And so maybe explain a little bit about what mental maps are and how, you know, especially in a survival situation or even in COVID, what we find out is we have these faulty mental maps and now we need to be agile enough to, to not only recognize it, but, but then change it. It sounds like that's kind of what you're doing with your wife is, all right, this is a new environment and we need to adapt to it the best we can. And we need to create some new mental maps. Yeah. Is that a good assessment you think? Yeah, it is. And, and so I'll, I'll just give you a brief explanation of mental models. We have a granddaughter, Annalise, who's about one and a half. And when she was littler, when she first started walking and saying words, the first time she saw a dog, somebody said, puppy. And, you know, she got excited. And the second time she saw a dog, somebody said puppy. And about the third time she saw a dog, she said puppy. And then throughout the rest of her life, she will never, ever mistake a dog for something else. She created a mental model that includes all dogs 
doesn't matter if it's a Chihuahua or a Great Dane. She knows what a dog is. She's never going to see a goat and say puppy. <laughs> it just won't happen. That's not the way the brain works. So she has created a mental model, and this is an ideal, idealized sort of representation that we make for everything. So everything in your world is turned into some kind of mental model, essentially so that you can ignore it. So that your thinking ability, your perception ability, your memory ability can all be directed toward things that will help you. So what's going to stand out is not the puppy or the thing that you already know for which you have a mental model. It's the thing that you don't have a mental model for, or it's a thing for which you've created a mental model that has an emotional label that says this is either very good, like a pizza, or this is very bad, like a, a bear, you know, so you will label everything in your environment good and bad or indifferent and most things fall into the indifferent category and you ignore them so when i my son jonas who's now 18 when he was maybe two when the garbage truck would come through the alley he would get really excited and he'd say garbage truck garbage truck and jump up and down well by the time he was three or four he no longer even noticed the garbage truck and this is a big noisy piece of machinery that he managed to ignore and and that's the way this system works and so this system which is with us for better or worse is what has helped us survive all these hundreds of thousands of years millions of years and it sometimes trips us up so once we make these mental models we figure out things to do with them like you learn how to tie your shoe this is a really hard thing to teach a four-year-old but once you teach him, you, you perform this kind of miracle in which you take a task that requires all of his concentration and turn it into a task that requires none of his concentration. So he can do it completely without thinking. And we will turn any activity that we do more than a few times into an automatic activity that we don't need to think about. This can be very dangerous. Most people have an automatic, I call them behavioral scripts, there's sometimes some of the scientists call them fixed action patterns, but they're essentially like tying your shoe. It's an automatic thing. Most of us have a behavioral script for driving a car. You can drive the car, talk on the phone, drink your latte, correct the kids in the back seat, all the while not realizing you've gone 15 blocks without thinking about your driving. How did you do that? And is that a good idea? So, so these are the kinds of neuroscience ideas I like to think about as I go through life, um, thinking, you know, am I really paying attention to the correct thing here? And what, and what let's go back to the, the faulty mental model though. I mean, you talk about, I think some stories where, where people get essentially get lost and they have a, you know, for, for lack of a better term, they have a faulty mental model. They think they, they know, but yeah. they, they end up going around in circles till they die <clears throat> because they cannot get out of this mode of, they don't even realize that they have a faulty mental map. And yeah, and this happens a lot in relationships where people get into a relationship. I, I've known a number of people this has happened to. You get into a relationship that's abusive and it becomes the norm. I mean, this is the way I live my life. Get up in the morning, you have breakfast, your husband beats you and goes to work. You know, this is this is like this is like a faulty mental model of of a path to happiness, let's say. But this happens in all kinds of walks of life. In business, it happens all the time. Xerox, for example, built 
a, a copier. It, it built the first successful copier and it was like the best selling product in technological history. And they made so much money, they didn't know what to do with it. And they thought, <clears throat> we're Xerox, we can do anything we want. So they decided to build a personal computer because they had all the necessary stuff to do that. And they put together a personal computer and, and didn't know what to do with it because they were a copier company. And in fact, they invented the mouse they invented the graphical user interface. They invented Ethernet. They invented all the stuff that we started the computer revolution with and never profited from it because they just didn't know how. They had this faulty mental model of what they should be doing. And as one of their executives put it, he said, if we made a paperclip, it would cost $3,000. And so, you know, that's an example of a faulty mental model in a different uh, setting but it happens all the time. And all of this, all of this kind of it ties back to what we're talking about with survival and different character traits learned or uh, character traits that you already possess that help you survive situations better than others. One of the, one of these character traits that you talk a lot about in deep survival is about being a rule breaker. And Ronner, do you consider yourself a rule breaker? Or the opposite. Absolutely. I, yeah. I proudly call myself a rule breaker. I think me too. Lawrence, do you actually consider yourself a rule breaker? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> and we make of, a terrible trio. Part of the, part of the impulse to be that way is not just to defy a rule, but to force yourself to think for yourself. Right. And so I tried to raise my, I have two daughters, two grown daughters, I tried to raise my um, <clears throat> daughters to be that way. And I know that my daughter Amelia was a lifeguard in high school. And she went, you know, she went to study abroad with a bunch of kids. And they were in Greece on a kind of vacation. And uh, there was this really, really bad surf and undertow. And, and they were all kids in Greece, you know, they're going to go swimming. They've got their swimming suits on and they all rushed for the surf. And Amelia got out there in front of them and was like, no, 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 stop what you're doing. Let's think about this again. And she, you know, it, it would have been so easy to go along with the crowd. And they were all like, bummer, bummer, bummer. And she stood her ground and kept these kids from going in where they could have been hurt. And so it's that kind of thinking you know, it's not so much the rule as just to take your own point of view and take your own stand. And often it's against the rules. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a good point. Let's be, let's be clear about this. Not, it's not always a good idea to break the rules. Sometimes actually breaking the rules will, will get you in trouble and maybe even kill you. Well, so, it's like, it's like Rodney Dangerfield said, you know, the doctor gave me six months to live. I couldn't pay my bill. He gave me another six months. <laughs> Um, if, uh, so if there's a certain kind of patient who, if you say, you know, I expect you to live six months, the person will die after six months. And there's another kind of patient who you say, you've got six months and they'll say, you're crazy. I'm not going to die in six months. Or the person, you know, who's that you get hurt and the doctor says, you'll never walk again. We've all heard this kind of story. And you say, well, yes, I am. I'm going to get up and I'm going to walk again. And yeah. So, so it, it's kind of a rebellious kind of attitude. And we had a guest recently that Brad Anderson, who's a, you know, 
he was diagnosed with type type one diabetes at 37 years old. And his motto is say, I say, I won't, and I will. And, yeah. and that's that kind of that stubborn mentality of, of right. what you might see in a, in a, in a survivor. I, I w- let me ask you this, Lawrence, you touch on this really briefly in the book of, of this idea that we have become, and I know I'm going to generalize here. So, so just bear with me, but we have become a society that is quick to blame. You know, we're going to sue somebody if we trip over a crack in, in the sidewalk. And, and w- in my mind, and I know not everybody fits this, but in my mind, we've become a society that likes to play the victim. And, and, I, and I think about if you're going to be a survivor, you can't, number one, you can't play the part of the victim. And number, number two, the best survivors are the ones that are not waiting for somebody to rescue them. They get involved in their own rescue. Do you, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on all of that? Are we, are we a society that, are, have we become soft? Have we become a society that gravitates towards uh, just blaming everybody else? I think that's certainly an important influence in our culture. I wouldn't want to tar everybody with the same. Yeah, sure, sure. But there, there's an area of psychology that refers to the locus of control that we perceive. There's a certain kind of person that we all know who I call the whiner. And this <laughs> that person, used to be me. <laughs> this person is constantly blaming others, constantly saying, woe is me, is co- you know, constantly wanting to get revenge. And this person sees the world as happening to the person. There's another kind of person, and that's called an external locus of control. There's another kind of person who thinks, I can do things. I can handle it. I just fell down on this sidewalk. I better watch where I'm walking, and takes control of situations and perceives the world as being something that is controlled from within them. And that's called an internal locus of control. And it turns out that people are much better achievers achievers of anything, including survival, if they perceive themselves as having some real agency in the world and they have an internal locus of control. So that I think makes an important distinction of whether you're gonna be a victim or a rescuer. And it is also true that if you can find someone who's worse off than you and help that person, you're gonna do a lot better. So in emergency situations, it is the doctors and nurses who tend to survive better. They're helping somebody. They're not viewing themselves as victims. And in survival situations, that's a very important thing to choose to do it, to choose to help someone else. And then in, in the sequel to Deep Survival, Surviving Survival, I talk about how one of the strategies you can employ, if you come out of something terrible and you're suffering a kind of PTSD, anxiety reaction, to find somebody who's worse off than you are and go help that person. And that really makes a big difference. That's so powerful. And we hear this, you know, I've read the book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning uh, by Viktor Frankl. And he credits a lot of the reason why he survived that is he, he certainly stepped into that role of helping others. Yes. And I think we can't underestimate how important that is because it kind of gives you a reason and a purpose uh, beyond yourself, bigger than yourself. And, and that's that, that we see that in survivors as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and one of the things in surviving survival that I talk about is simply having 
a goal, having something to do, and especially something to do that tends to calm you. So you might find that playing the piano makes you feel good. It makes you calmer. You don't experience that anxiety when you do. So you play piano and guess what? You play it enough, you get good at it, but it can be anything. It can be really anything. It's a, an innate circuit in our brains that we share with all mammals. It's called the seeking circuit. And it's this, the part of the brain that's engaged when an animal is stalking prey. So if you watch a cat stalking prey, it's very quiet. It's very methodical, very goal oriented. If you step on a cat's tail, you see the opposing circuitry that's called the rage circuit and the cat <laughs> screams and the, the claws come out. You know, there's a big rage response and these two circuits compete with each other all the time. And so if you get traumatized, the tendency is for that rage circuit to become hypersensitive. Anything can set you off or else you just feel anxious all the time or afraid. And the, the answer to that is to find something that turns it off. And that's the seeking circuit. So in the case of one woman I know, she found that knitting did this for her. The act of knitting calmed her down after a big trauma. One guy who was a World War II veteran, suffered a lot of PTSD, found that he, he became a bricklayer after the war and found that the, the rhythmic, methodical laying of the bricks was a therapy for him that actually made him feel good. And later in life, he discovered that golf could do that for him. So it doesn't really matter what it is. You'll find something that will do this for you. Oh, and, and I've certainly seen it. I have a lot of veteran friends, of course, and I see a lot of them turning to agriculture, believe it or not. Yes. Uh, sowing back into the earth. It's a very calming practice. It, it helps many people. And I, I've seen this work absolute wonders. Yes, it's true. And if you can find the right thing for yourself, it could be painting. It could be a musical instrument. You will find great relief and, co and comfort in it. And I would say Tara is, is, is adopted that as well. She's got a huge garden in her backyard. <laughs> there you go. That's just punishment to see what I can't <laughs> grow. <laughs> it, was a, it was a beautiful garden. This is, this is also fascinating. And I could talk about survival forever. For, for some reason, the, the idea, survival stories fascinate me. And, and so, so I could easily go, go on for hours. Let's, let's spin this a little bit. I love the book, Deep Survival, but, but I, I'm sure, Lawrence, you're going, hey, how about we talk about some of this, this great stuff that I have coming out? I think your latest book is Flight 232. Is that, is that correct? My latest book is a collection of essays called The Chemistry of Fire. It just, okay. came, out, it just came out in November, and, and it is, as I say, a collection of essays. So there are different stories of, of different things that form the basis for what Deep Survival became, ultimately. But my latest full-length book on a single subject is Flight 232, and it is a very detailed reconstruction of the crash of a fully loaded jumbo jet in 1989. It should have been a totally fatal accident, but by a quirk of fate, two-thirds of the people survived, and they are in that book. And if I'm, I'm going back in memory, but isn't that the Al Haynes, I believe yeah. was the, was the pilot and, and it was a DC 10 for, for anybody that's, that's familiar with aviation on the call or on the, yeah. on, the, on the podcast. And it was amazing. If I remember right, that they ran a computer simulation on this and 
I think everybody that, that went through the computer simulation failed it. And so what Captain Haynes did was, was nothing short of miraculous, but, but it was even beyond that. Right. And so as they, you know, he puts this airplane down on, on, on mostly on the runway, a lot of people survived. And so a lot of stories come out of that, I would imagine of who survived that crash landing and who didn't, is that kind of, am I, am I getting that right of, of kind of where the book is going? Well, the, the way that that accident worked, there was a lot of chance involved in who survived and who didn't. And so it's not as much of an analysis of survival traits as deep survival is. It's more, so when this accident happened in 1989, <clears throat> my wife at the time had cancer and we had two little kids and I was very distracted and so although I've been an aviation journalist all my life, I saw this accident on TV. And I said, that's really fascinating. And I can't do it. I can't pay attention right now. So I didn't write about it back then. <clears throat> but then along about 2011 or something, I came across it again. And I thought, wow, all these people are still alive and I mm -hmm. could go talk to them. So, so I did. And I wrote the book. And there are certainly cases in the book where somebody made the right decision and survived and somebody else made the wrong decision and didn't survive. But it is more a reconstruction of a historical event in our culture that I was amazed to find nobody had ever done before. Hmm. So there's, there's always been reconstructions of things like the Titanic. There's many books about the Titanic, but we have these terrible, horrific crowd killing aviation accidents and I'd never seen one reconstructed for historical purposes. And that's what this is. It takes the point of view of the passengers, the crew, the flight attendants, the air traffic controllers, the rescuers, everybody who's involved in this drama is in the book. And so you get this 360 degree panoramic view of this event that is just unlike any other I've known in aviation history. Unbelievable. I am in awe of um, and very, very humbled by the amount of interviews that you have probably done throughout your lifetime for not only your books, but for National Geographic. This one in particular is fascinating because of all the human interest elements. Gosh, the stories you must have heard getting all of those interviews for Flight 232 is amazing. Yeah, it's true. And it's, it's funny, when the book came out, I got a call from a playwright who mm. is very well known in Chicago here. And she said, I read your book, Flight 232, and I heard you on NPR talking about it. And I've been afraid of flying all my life. I'm a two Xanax flyer, mm. but, but your book changed my life and I'm not afraid to fly anymore. And I feel like I need to do something about it. Can I make a play out of your book? Wow. And I, and I said, well, <laughs> I said, I don't think I could make a play out of my book, but you go right ahead and try. And her, na her name is Vanessa Stalling. She's a brilliant, brilliant playwright and turned the book, which is about a plane crash, into a very successful play that ran, oh, let's see, it ran 2016, 2017 in Chicago, 2018 in Denver, I think, and, and Miami. It, it was amazing what she did with it. And it's because of the human interest. It's not because of the mechanics of, of the crash. There's a lot of stuff in the book, for example, about how mechanically the accident started, but none of that is in the play, really. It's all about 
like the flight attendants and how caring they were of the people who were trapped in this plane with them and and certain death was staring them in the face i mean very dramatic stuff that's in the book so so i have to ask Lawrence, how did that make you feel to see your book turned into a play did you like it oh it was amazing yes yeah we saw it several times it was just amazing i mean it was a brilliant piece of work when you got to the door to enter the theater they gave you a boarding pass cool and it was the inside of the theater was set up like you're in the plane. Wow. Oh, wow. It was scary. You know, even though I'd written the book, it was like terrifying. <laughs> to me. And I, I was just awed at Vanessa's abilities with that. And the whole crew, the uh, Chicago House Theater did it here in Chicago. Brilliant. Lawrence, before we head out of here, first of all, thank you for your time. It's pretty amazing to be able to talk about three books. Usually, if we talk to an author, we only really get to cover one, but we, I think we've dug in on three today, which is great. We were talking earlier in the podcast about, you know, you were mentioning people are really going to have to kind of put their steel together, put their metal together for what life is going to be beyond this pandemic. And that we are, this is a survival of trauma to a certain extent. And whether it's deep survival or surviving survival, even the book Flight 232, it sounds like would be brilliant books for anyone today to read, to start kind of building those muscles. What advice do you have for people today when it comes to actually building out their mental toughness, resilience, and grit that they can use in their daily lives? Well, there's as a pilot, Ron, you know, there's lots of pilot sayings. And one of the one of my favorite ones was always, well, my tail's fallen off, my engine's out, and the plane is on fire. I'm two inches from the ground, but I'm not hurt yet. And and by that, and one of the stories in Deep Survival is actually about a guy who broke his leg on a mountain in Peru at twenty thousand feet and realized that he was going to die and decided that despite the realization that he was going to die, he was going to do everything he could to continue down the mountain, you know, and get as low on the mountain as he possibly could before dying. And he, he saved himself as a result of that attitude. And so in a situation like this, the best thing for us to do, and again, I would point people to the appendix of deep survival where the 12 traits of survivors are, best thing we can do is to do the next right thing and put our one foot in front of the other. And I always talk about deep survival as a book that will help you clean your garage. So if you've lived in a house for 30 years and you open your garage door and it's packed floor to ceiling with junk and you think, my God, I can never clean that out. You close the door again. That's not going to get your garage clean. But if you just go in there and take that one old lawnmower out and put it in the alley, you've made a start. And little by little, one item at a time, you just approach the problem, you break it down into little tasks. And each time you do one of those little tasks, you pat yourself on the back and say, that was a good job. I'm glad you did that. And you move to the next one and you'll just be amazed how it gets done. And don't forget to breathe. Thanks for joining us this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell all your friends. If you didn't, let's just forget this happened and we'll try again next week. Until then, join the revolution to forge metal and connect with us on social media.